Well, as you can see, uh, we are once again going to be looking at the story of Elisha uh, this morning. If you've missed the last few weeks, uh, we started off by talking about burning plows. In other words, leaving behind anything that would keep us from following God and moving ahead in terms of what God is calling us to do. And then last time we looked at how God authenticated Elisha's call to be a prophet and how when people recognized his authority as God's representative, well, there was colossal blessing. Uh, And when this was mocked and ridiculed, then there was curse. Just so you know, uh, today we're going to be talking about digging ditches. Uh, so earlier on, Russ was kind of doing a bit of limbering up. By the end, all of you will be doing some of those kind of stretches and limbering up. Digging ditches. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, perhaps you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 3. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, no worries. Uh, when we get to it, the words will appear on the screen behind me. Now, before we dive into the story today, I'm wondering how many of you have ever played what I call the if-only game. You think, well, if only I had such and such, then life would be so much better and easier, or I'd be a whole lot happier. If only I had a better job, if only I had a different house, if only I had different friends, if only I had a different teacher, if only I had more hair, or at least hair in the right places, if only I had a partner or a different partner or a partner earned a little bit more money, if only God would answer this one prayer, then everything would be sorted out. I don't know what your if only would be, but throughout life, I think we all recognize we do have these needs. And we tend to think, if only I had whatever it is, then life would be so much easier for me. What I want to do today is encourage you to listen to this message through the lens of your greatest need. And it's my prayer that God would powerfully meet you where you're at in your greatest need. Just to quickly fill you in on a bit of the background to today's passage and the story we're going to be looking at, we're going to see that there were three kings who joined forces to do battle against a group of people called the Moabites. Three against one, they thought, this should be easy. We'll have a very decisive victory. But often in life, things don't quite go as we planned. We thought we got it all figured out and things didn't turn out the way we thought they were going to turn out. That's what happens with these three kings. Instead of winning easily, they find their troops marching for seven days, ending up wandering in the desert until they're completely out of water. They're about to die of thirst. Their animals are going to die of thirst. They have this very, very significant need. And what we're going to learn as we look at this story is a really helpful principle. Here it is. Your greatest need becomes a blessing when it drives you to depend on God. Your greatest need, your biggest, if only, becomes a blessing when it drives you to depend on God. Let's pick up the story in verse 9. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? In other words, we thought we were going to win easily, but now it looks as though we're about to get destroyed. Verse 11, but Jehoshaphat asked, 
Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Now, if you remember, a few years before this, Elijah had prophesied that there would be no more rain in the whole of Israel. And it didn't rain for three whole years. But after three years, Elijah prayed, and God sent the biggest rainstorm the people had ever seen. So these guys are thinking, wow, if Elijah did that, maybe Elisha could be able to help us as well. Verse 12, Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to meet Elisha. Let's just pause there. Make sure we know what's going on in this story. The three kings, they're going to go to battle against the Moabites. They're going to win easily, but they don't. They find themselves in grave danger. They're out of water. Now, what you may not know is these three kings weren't the least bit interested in serving God. But all of a sudden, in the moment they're in trouble, they do what I think a lot of us do. Oh yeah, God, we're in trouble. Can you help us? Can you rescue us? And so they say, is there anybody who's like really in with God? Anyone who could pull some spiritual strings for us? And they kind of rack their brains and eventually say, oh yeah, there's that Elisha guy, the prophet. Maybe he could help us out. And I'm kind of guessing they'd heard about some of the miracles that Elisha was doing. He'd already separated the the Jordan River. Okay, pretty impressive. Another time, he spoke to this polluted spring of water. It's like you drink the water, you die. He spoke to it, healed the water so you could drink from it safely. Another thing he did is when some young boys were making fun of him because evidently he didn't have a whole lot of hair and the young boys were calling him baldy, baldy, baldy. Remember, he looked at that last time. Elijah, what did he do? He summoned a couple of bears out of the woods and the bears destroyed the boys. That's in your Bible. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. You you should read your Bibles a bit more. Uh, And you should also never make fun of a guy with a bald head. Because you never know how much faith he might have and how close you are to a bear. So just be warned. Now, I'm guessing these guys, they'd heard some of these stories. And they're like, Elisha, could you perhaps help us out? But Elisha is not willing to play along. He's like, okay, okay, I I get it. You want to ignore God, but now you're in trouble and you want some help from God. You suddenly want me to leap into action on your behalf. Here's what he says in verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of of your father and the prophets of your mother. In other words, what's wrong with the prophets of your false gods? Why don't you just go to them? No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. It's like, okay, if you want me to prophesy... Go and get me the biggest, most cumbersome, most difficult instrument to move and bring it in here sharpish with someone who's good at playing it. You might be reading this thinking, 
he's pretty demanding, isn't he? But the reality is, this was something of a common practice for prophets. You see, there's something that happens when you worship God with music. It's like, when I personally am praying for something really big from God, and I'm struggling with faith, and I want my faith to grow, what I tend to do is I put worship music on, I find it helps me connect to God, it lifts my spirits, it stirs my faith. And so later on, we're going to return into worship, we're going to have some music, probably not a harpist, I'm not going to be that demanding, Uh, but we're going to worship, and as we worship, I'm trusting that God is going to come and be stirring your faith as we do so. And so that's what Elisha does. He's like, play the harp for me. And the three kings are thinking, brilliant. We'll get him a harp and he's going to give us a word of encouragement. He's going to tell us God's going to send rain and rescue us. What's he do? Does he bring them a word of encouragement? No, he gives them a ridiculous command. Verse 15, while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha and he said, this is what the Lord says, Make this valley full of ditches. Now, just to say, some versions of the Bible, in fact, it might be a version that you're reading right now, doesn't refer to digging ditches. Uh, some versions choose to translate this verse as, this valley will be full of pools. Now, without wishing to bamboozle you, and certainly without wishing to give the impression that I'm some expert in ancient Hebrew, which I'm most definitely not, uh, but I am able to read what experts of ancient Hebrew have written about this, and they tend to say that this sentence, this verse, can legitimately be translated. Now, hang with me just for a moment. We're going to get grammatically technical, then we're going to get back into what God's saying through this. Some, uh, some say that uh, this sentence can be legitimately translated as an imperative. So, for example, the New American Standard Bible, New King James Version, uh, older versions of the NIV translate this verse as an instruction for the people to dig ditches. Or it can be translated uh, equally validly uh, as an absolute or abstract action. So the ESV, the New Living Translation, newer versions of the New International Version translate this verse as God doing all the work himself. They argue that the thought of the people digging ditches kind of detracts from the God-given nature of this whole miracle. Now, I don't know about you, you may be a Hebrew scholar, I'm guessing probably not, so we need to just take the word of the Hebrew scholars on this one. But personally, I'm happy to see this as a dovetailing, a coming together of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's like God's provision for our desperate need is a complete and utter gift from beginning to end. But at the same time, very often, we have to dig the equivalent of ditches in order to receive and contain the blessing he gives. At the end of the day, it's a test of our faith. I mean, can you imagine the response of the three kings to being told to dig a lot of ditches? I mean, huh? Wait a minute. I thought God was going to make it rain and miraculously solve all of our problems. And now you're telling us when our troops are about to die of thirst, you want them to go out into the the heat of the day and do a whole lot of manual labor and dig some ditches. Elisha responds, yeah, that would most definitely be a yes. I want you to go out and dig some ditches. But there's no sign of any rain anywhere. We're, We're in a severe drought. What's the point? Yeah, I know. 
but I want you to dig some ditches. And here's what we're going to see. Your greatest need, your greatest if only, becomes your greatest blessing when it drives you to the point of depending on God. Verse 17, for this is what the Lord says, you will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water and you, your cattle and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You'll overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You'll cut down every good tree, block up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. That's the story. For the rest of our time together, I want to try and apply this into our lives today. In short, I want to try and talk to you about faith that works. On the one hand, talk about faith that's effective. In other words, faith that moves the heart of God, faith that invokes a response from him. On the other hand, I'm not just talking about faith that's effective, I also want to talk about faith that's active, faith that actually does something, faith that so believes that God is going to act, that we act and take a step towards God, believing that God is going to take a step towards us. Let me very quickly show you two principles of faith that works before we finish off. First of all, only God can send the water, but sometimes he wants you to dig a ditch. Only God can send the water, but it's like sometimes he wants to see your face. I mean, do you really think that the God of the universe needed these guys out there digging ditches? Of course he didn't. God God can do anything. God can like ditches everywhere. You see that? It's like kind of ditches everywhere, lakes, oceans could appear. I mean, God could do that. Didn't need them to do the work. But it's almost as if he's saying, you show me your face and I will show you my faithfulness. Because God loves to see our face. Read the Gospels. You'll see this again and again and again. All the way through, when Jesus saw their faith, then there was a miracle. Now, just by an aside, how do you actually see faith? Well, here's what James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 2, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. How do you see faith? You see faith in deeds. It leads to action. So, for example, when Peter was on the boat, remember the story? He says, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come and I'll come. And Jesus says, come. What does Peter do? He gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. That's when you see faith. The other 11 disciples in the boat, they stayed in the boat. You didn't see a whole lot of faith going on with them. But the guy who gets out of the boat onto the water, then you can see some faith. I've been there many times. And God wants us to participate in his miracle. It's still his miracle, but he wants us to participate in it. Remember the guy with the withered hand? What does Jesus say to him? He says, stretch out your hand. In other words, I can heal you, but I want to see you demonstrate that you believe it. Jesus could have gone, pow, and it's healed in a moment. Could have done that. But instead he says, I'm going to heal you, 
but I want to see your faith to stretch out your hand first. Another time there's a guy who couldn't walk his entire life. Jesus looks at him and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. I'm going to heal you, but I'm not going to pick you up. I want to see you have the faith to believe that what I said was true, so get up. Listen, only God can send the water, but sometimes he wants you to dig a ditch. There's another occasion with a guy who was blind from birth. Jesus goes and and picks up some dirt and spits in it, remember the story, makes a bit of mud, puts it on the guy's eyes. And Jesus says, go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. In other words, I'm going to do my part. I want to see you do yours. You show me your face, I'll show you my faithfulness. In the words of Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. I'll tell you, you get a whole stack of opportunities to test this out every single day. And so, if you're up for the challenge, why not ask yourself on a regular basis, what have I done today because God asked me to? I'm not talking about the times when we just happen coincidentally to do his will because it kind of falls within our plans anyway. (laughs) That, That may well be a good thing, but that's not faith. Faith comes when, as a conscious act, we lay aside our appetites, our desires, we lay aside our fears and our nervousness, and instead do what he tells us to do. I believe there are too many people that are just waiting for God to show them his faithfulness, but they're not showing him any faith. This next week, what is stopping you taking a step of faith and doing the equivalent of digging some ditches? I don't know. Maybe you want to heal a relationship that's gone bad. You may need to forgive someone before they've even asked for forgiveness. Or treat them with love when all they're doing is being ugly to you. What's that? You're digging a ditch. All of a sudden God goes, okay, let's talk about your money. We go, no, 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 no. no. I love you, but the money part is mine. I'm willing to trust you in all these areas of my life, except when it comes to my stuff. Maybe it's not money. Maybe you're single and it's a sex issue for you. It's like you start following Jesus. All of a sudden he goes, okay, let's talk about the sex part. And just for the record, God is very much pro-sex. I mean, he invented it in the first place. There's a book in the Bible, Song of Solomon. He says, eat and drink your fill, you lovers. So it doesn't sound very repressed either. But he definitely puts parameters around it, which are for your joy. So I've met a lot of people who are following Jesus All of a sudden, there's this area of sex that needs to be addressed. And they're going, okay, I'm not going to surrender in that area. That's asking just a bit too much for me. Or maybe it's at work, where you've made this decision that maybe wasn't completely ethical. And you just go, well, that's what guys in my field have to do to survive. This is what it looks like in the real world. And God's going, this isn't how we're going to do it. You're like, this is what I've got to do. I haven't got an option in this. But here's what I've observed in so many lives. 
when we stop taking these steps of faith, when we stop trusting God's Word and acting on it, when we stop digging ditches, things tend to end up stagnating. And yet, we we keep coming along to church on a Sunday, but we're left wondering where God is, wondering where His power is in our lives, wondering where His presence is. Because where there's faith, there's the power of God, there's the presence of God, there's growth, there's life, there's joy. But where there is a lack of faith, well, things don't happen. Our experience of God just shrivels up and eventually dies. You know, some of you are here today, in fact, all of you are here today, but some of you, don't be too surreal, uh, some of you are here today, hear me out, and it feels like you're in a pretty dark place right now. And it feels like you're spiritually dry. There's not a whole lot of water. I think one of the first places you've got to look is, has God been asking me to walk in faith and dig some ditches And for whatever reason, I've refused. I'm telling you, so many people are wanting some kind of new revelation from God. And they haven't been obedient to what they already know. And if that is where you find yourself today, it is going to eventually slow down your faith. It's going to bog it right down. Might even stop it altogether. You can't say to God, no, I'm not going to listen to you. And then come along here every Sunday going, God, where are you? You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. It takes these steps of faith. Sometimes at the end of the day, you've just got to dig a ditch. First of all, only God can send the water, but sometimes he wants you to dig a ditch. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. Real faith believes big, but is willing to start small. Real faith believes big, but is willing to start small. Now, here's the challenge. I know way too many people who call themselves Christians, and sadly, they're not thinking big enough. Listen, we serve a God who can do exceedingly and abundantly more than all we ask, think, or imagine. And so, it's time to think big because we serve an infinite God. But I know just as many Christians who think big, and yet at the same time, they're not willing to start small. I mean, think about this. If you're alive in Elisha's time, how do you practically dig a ditch? You take a shovel, one load of dirt at a time. In other words, you start small. It's a passage in the Old Testament, Zechariah 4 verse 10, tells us not to despise the day of small things. Sometimes you just have to start small. I mean, isn't that how it was for Elisha? Before he ever prophesied this huge outpouring of water from heaven, we read in this passage he spent years faithfully pouring water on Elijah's hands. You read that thing, what's that all about? Well, he had this big call of God on his life, but he was willing to start small. There may be some of you here today, and you've got a big vision. Where are you going to start? You're going to start with what's in front of you. You're going to be faithful with what God has given you. You're going to start small. 
Let me just share a few stories of people that I know that are living this out. I love their faith. Think of Colin just hiding in the back row there. Only what I'm about to say now. He's got a dream of being an MP one day. How did he start? He started serving in the constituency office, giving out flyers. Still living with the dream of being an MP one day. Think of Mark, also part of this site. He was called to be a prophetic voice to the nation in education. Where did he start? He did a PGCE. That's started teaching a class of primary kids. Think of some people in our south site, Rachel and James and Kate, and a dream of overturning the prejudice against refugees in this city. So what did they do? Earlier this year, they organised something called Run for Refugees. Around 130 runners in Cannon Hill Park raised over £8,000. Think of another couple in our south site, Jamie and Rosie. They've got a big dream. They want to see no vulnerable children in the world at all. Big dream. So what are they doing? They're 20 years old and they're starting the process of fostering at 20. Think of Raj in our north site. His company this year just won awards for commercial project of the year and also creating the best corporate facility. Ten years ago, Raj was cycling around the city with a rucksack full of cables, drill bits and AV equipment. Starting small, seeing something big. How do you do something big? You start small. You start small. It's not even the story of us as a church. 20 years ago, this August, Helen and I moved to Birmingham with the promise that God was going to do something that would be like a national exhibition centre for his glory. We dreamt of the day when Jesus would be the most talked about person in Birmingham very much wanted to be for the good of this whole city. Had a vision of impacting nations one day. And so we started meeting in our house. Initially just the two of us. Then Dave came along, a few others. And we ran now for course. A couple of people became Christians. Started meeting on a Sunday with 25 people in a room. And now we have four meetings across three sites. We run a cap centre and a thriving work with the elderly. And we spawned Sputnik, a, a national arts network. And we sent teams to plant churches into Handsworth and Bromsgrove and Northfield. And we sent leaders to Bristol and Manchester and Solihull. We're about to plant our first church into Beirut. You know, it's been incredibly hard work. So many of you have sacrificed so much to get us to this point. And perhaps some of you, if you're being honest, are wondering why. I know there have been times when I have, even this last week, the last few weeks, it's been incredibly tough, a number of blows. I've gone back to God, why am I doing this? Here's the reason. We believe that God has promised us so much more than we're seeing right now. And if we're truly to welcome and hold on to the great influx of new believers from the neighbourhoods around us that we're believing for, then we need to get ready. Very practically, we need to create the space to raise up more gifted and trained leaders. Surely we need to work on our giving and our hospitality. We need to work on our levels of friendship, our teaching and counselling skills, our commitment to disciple-making. Yeah, it's hard work. But if we're genuinely believing God to do what he's promised to do, then we mustn't begrudge the time and the labor, the expense, the effort 
the ongoing change that's involved in it all. We could just keep things as they are, be pretty comfortable, pretty safe, maintain what we've got, but then we'd run the risk of missing out on what God has for us in the future. Being part of the church isn't about comfort and getting your needs met, so much as being ready to do whatever it takes to receive whatever spiritual blessing God in his goodness and grace chooses to give us. So in conclusion, I want to give each of you, every single one of you, permission to think big, but empower you to start small. I want to encourage you to think big, but be willing to start small because only God can send the water, but he wants you to dig some ditches. You say, God, I believe you can. Then you start where you are with what's in front of you. I'm telling you, God loves it when we participate in his miracles, when he can see our faith, because faith without works is absolutely dead. Let's close this out by just looking at what happens after the people have dug the ditches. Verse 20, the next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. As you read on, you see that God then gives them this remarkable victory over the Moabites. I want to invite you to stand, if you would. We're going to pray. Some of you, right now, you have got a significant need in your life. You think, if only, if only God would meet that, if only God would answer this prayer. I just think what that thing would be for you. Well, don't ever forget that your biggest need can become your biggest blessing when it drives you to depend on God. Because only God can send the water, but sometimes he wants you to dig a ditch. And real faith believes big, but is willing to start small.